Hi, and welcome to episode 196 of the weekly Google Cloud Platform Podcast. I am John, and I'm here with my colleague, Mark. Hey, Mark, how's it going? I'm all right. How are you doing, John? Pretty good. We had a pretty long series of trips together. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of good to, you know, wind down and just, you know, get back to our listeners. Yeah. Back in San Francisco for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks, and then I'm going on vacation. Yeah. Excellent. So who are we talking to today? So yeah, we're going to talk to Jesse Houston, CEO and co-founder of Phoenix Labs. And if you guys don't know what Phoenix Labs is, they made several games, one of them being very successful being Dauntless. And I've played it quite a bit and it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool game. Yeah, awesome. And then after that, we've got our question of the week. As per usual, be asking me what the difference is between premium versus standard network. Why would I use one over the other? Sounds good. So let's get into our cool things of the week. Let's do that. first cool thing of the week is virtual displays for Compute Engine are now GA. So what that means is when you remote into your actual server, your Windows instance, you can actually create a virtual display specifically for your VM that's running its own separate CPU, which is kind of awesome because you don't have to allocate GPUs for it. So that means that this is going to be less expensive. Very nice. Awesome. Speaking of going GA, cloud native load balancing on GKE is now generally available. So if you're not familiar with that, basically you want to do load balancing to your containers running on top of GKE. This is a more efficient way of doing so. So this is basically what they call network endpoint group load balancing. Basically, it means that your traffic is going from your load balancer directly to your container rather than sort of meandering its way around your cluster to eventually end up at a pod. We'll have a link in the show notes to the blog post. They have a great diagram explaining this really well. But uh, yeah, if you want to take it for a spin, it's now GA. That's awesome. Our next cool thing comes from one of our fellow developer advocates, Mete Atomo. He has written a blog post on running a Windows container app on GCE. Oh, nice. So it's pretty awesome because if you're getting started running containers and dealing with containers and Docker, this helps you run a Windows instance. And Mete really focuses and targets the .NET community. So he goes through all of the steps of creating a container app and then, you know, building a Docker image and then deploying on GKE. So it's kind of awesome. Very nice. Very cool. And last but not least, it's a special plug out to, well, essentially myself <laughs> and the rest of the team that works on the Agones project, of course. So Agones, the open source platform for running multiplayer game servers on top of Kubernetes. You may have heard me mention it once or twice. We went 1.0 as of about a week ago. Congrats. Uh, so there's a really big milestone, which is super cool. Uh, so we now have a stable API service and we're ready for production workloads. And we're definitely picking up a lot more people using it in production. So very, very exciting stuff for Google Cloud for games. Awesome. And congratulations. Why, thank you very much. Well, John, why don't we go have a chat with Jesse and talk all about Phoenix Labs and Dauntless. So this week, we are joined by Jesse Houston, uh, CEO and co-founder of Phoenix Labs. He is one of the people behind the hot new game. Well, I don't know if it's new, actually. It's a good topic. Uh, Dauntless, which has been doing very well lately. But Jesse, how are you doing? I am doing really well. Thanks, Mark. Excellent. Excellent. So for people who aren't familiar with you or Phoenix Labs, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. So you gave me the best introduction that I think I've ever had. So yeah, I started Phoenix Labs <laughs> uh, about five years ago now. 
we have been basically from the beginning making Dauntless. Dauntless has been out in its most recent form, like it's got a wide release, you know, full access form since May. So we launched on May 21st. Prior to that, we, you know, did various kind of rounds of betas from an open beta last year. And then the year prior to that, we kind of had a closed beta. So Dauntless has actually been around for about three years, just kind of, you know, in various soft launched forms. You know, just kind of give you an idea of what Dauntless is, because, you know, I always speak like everybody knows. So it's called a hunting action game. It's about you and your friends getting together on any platform, coming together, fighting big monsters that we call behemoths. You know, and then you kind of collect their bits and you go back into the city and you hang out and you forge new weapons and armor and you go back and kill bigger, scarier, kind of these big boss encounters. I remember the open beta when it was at Google Cloud Next last year. Those was my first Next. So I do remember the beta. You did mention that you can pretty much play with your friends on any platform so i'm assuming that's cross-platform yeah right yeah so um, we're like the third game ever to allow what we call kind of the one dauntless experience so the idea of you know if you're on pc and i'm on xbox and mark was on ps4 we could all play together and that you guys could switch consoles and it would be totally just fine where it's a pretty crazy thing but we love the fact that not only can we play together, but we can be on each other's friends lists and, you know, we can swap back and forth and that kind of stuff. Just to be clear, I'm a PC gamer. Good. <laughs> not, to, not to disparage other people playing console. I just, I can't play games on, with a controller. It, I can't do it. It's funny. I actually play Dauntless with a controller on PC. Oh, interesting. Interesting. They're like certain types of games like that. I just end up looking at the sky or the floor and that's just my life. <laughs> totally. Cool. So, um, so, so you said like you've been running Dauntless for over three years. It's an online multiplayer game. So yeah. us in the industry, oh God, I don't want to say that. That's a hopeful. But like we refer to that as kind of like a live service <laughs> yeah. online game, like as an ongoing game. What, what's that like? Can you tell us a little bit about like what is a live service game and like what is the experience of running that like? You know, we knew from the get-go that we wanted to be a live service game. Yeah, we call it a live service game too. And so literally from the first line of code written, or the first submit anyways into Perforce, had to come with a deployment step. And so we started running dedicated servers like four years ago. Initially, it was a total mess. You know, we do these things called holiday builds, or we used to do them when we were still in a really closed state where, you know, we try and get everything in just before the holidays. And then while we did the studio closure, everybody would play. And I can remember in... I think it was 2015's holiday build. Myself and the technical director basically did 12-hour shifts through the entire holiday oh writing Python scripts just to keep the game from falling over with like 150 people playing. Not at the same time, like period. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, like it'd be like 10 people playing and like, the, you know, we'd have to do like manual log rotations and all this other stuff. You know, that kind of experience really taught us all of the things that we needed kind of progressively as, as we launched. And so there's a lot of stuff on May 21st that went wrong, but a lot of stuff that actually went really right because, you know, we had been doing it kind of progressively bigger and having never turned the servers off in four years really helps kind of just get you used to it. You know, a lot of companies that go into the live environment tend to have to all of a sudden slow down because they're like, oh, what is updating? Whereas, you know, it's no big deal. In the last two weeks, we've patched five times and you know, most players only saw one patch, for example, like a lot of our stuff doesn't need to take the game service down all the time. And it's been a great learning experience either way. 
that's the best way to go. Not having to actually turn off your game in order to get a patch, you know, doesn't really mean any downtime because I hate those games where you have updates, yep. you have to wait three hours, and I'm like, now what do I do with my life? It's been really interesting, that experience, by the way, like Xbox and PlayStation don't have tools to support that kind of experience of like the no downtime deploys. And so we've gotten the opportunity to work with them and kind of do a little bit of teaching on our own on what that experience can feel like and that it's okay. And that that doesn't mean that there's going to be rampant hacking or some sort of other vulnerabilities like downtiming and deploying don't need to be the same thing. And, you know, it's actually been a really cool experience getting to kind of introduce gamers on these platforms to that experience. Let's go back a little bit and talk about going from 150 gamers to, you know, a full launch. And let's talk about scaling. Can you tell us a little bit how your team went about scaling this to support, you know, a full-time launch? And then you've gone from 150 to God knows how many players you have now. You know, initially when we did everything, it was all, um, you know, everything was super manual. So, you know, we would deploy a VM manually upload a build and initially it was like on windows boxes only and you know it was all like put your ips in by hand and that kind of stuff and then we basically kind of just kept iterating to you know add more and more automation through the processes and then as you're flexing that and as you're adding more players stuff just you know kind of breaks and so a lot of our kind of scaling efforts were around you know just fixing what was broken and making sure that like we're then able to see you know into the future far enough that we could kind of see the next most vulnerable thing like more recently you know SQL databases you know there's a bunch of like our inventory was on SQL and you know we had millions and millions of players showing up every day and you know just the transaction rates were just way too high for whatever SQL was ever going to be able to handle and so we were able to move over to Bigtable and we had to do that in a no downtime world as well so that was kind of super exciting like you know having to write basically a service that would check Bigtable and if it wasn't there then go get it from SQL and then load it into Bigtable and then give the response back to players and that kind of stuff and so you know through that whole experience though we've basically been like okay well that's the next thing that's going to fall over let's go and harden it or re-architect it or what have you and we've gone from like you know hardcore VM based kind of call it like 2014 2015 thought processes on how stateful game servers should run to you know almost everything now runs in kubernetes we were able to basically load a bunch of stateful services into that and now all of our game servers for example are in kates and you know that's been hugely helpful because we don't have to worry about things like vm management nearly as much it's just like okay cool fire up a pod put some players on it you know if the pod has a problem no big deal it can die and you know it doesn't take down dozens and dozens of players it only you know affects four and whereas like historically if a vm died which you know would happen once or twice a day it could take down thousands of players and so we don't have that problem anymore so we've been you know super lucky that we've just been kind of able to iterate that way nice can you give us a sense of like yeah john mentioned like scale like can you share numbers about like how big a player base you have or at least something general? Yeah. So, you know, I think we've announced it. So hopefully we have. Otherwise, my PR guy is going to come at me with a lightning bolt. But we've got about 15 million players who are actively playing Dauntless, a great group of folks. And that's kind of across the three platforms. And, you know, we're moving into Switch next, which we're really excited about all of those new players coming in and then mobile kind of in the next year or so. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually getting it on Switch. So, <laughs> Oh, dude, it's, it's so good. Surprisingly great experience. 
<laughs> so yeah, I mean, you've mentioned dedicated game servers. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a variety of different backend services or like what does that sort of architecture look like a little bit? So it's entirely inside of like GCP. And, you know, we basically have when a user logs in, there's a bunch of, you know, various kind of a combination of both REST based and uh, gRPC calls that happen to various services. And, you know, those are like a combination of Java and Python, you know, microservices that live in, in Kates. And then, you know, once you've kind of gone through all of that stuff, we drop you onto like a big kind of heavy C++ based game server that manages most of, you know, what you experience as a player from what the behemoth is doing and kind of where you're at, what the city looks like, that kind of thing. And so each of those pods will have anywhere from, you know, four to 50 players on them at any given time. And there are kind of two big ones. There's the concept of like a city and then an island server. And they're different because, you know, like one requires a behemoth and the other one requires lots of players. And so we kind of keep them somewhat separate. And then, yeah, there's this like cloud of other services around it from, you know, inventory to store management to, you know, persistent data storage to, you know, telemetry and analytics and stuff like that. And largely kind of we shim a lot of calls from basically the client and the servers and then we kind of farm it out to other Google services from like BigQuery and that kind of stuff. I would imagine that there has to be some type of reasoning for taking this type of approach and going for using these backend services. So I'm not sure if you want to share like your secret sauce as to why you made these design choices. Um, you know, we're pretty lucky this isn't the first time that we have built like a scalable game service. We got a lot of folks from, you know, myself from Riot. We've got some folks from EA. We've got some folks from PopCap. And so we kind of brought together a bunch of learnings from previous call it big AAA experiences. And, you know, as we thought about how we've historically built stuff, you know, there's always those lists you make at the end of any given kind of product cycle where you're like, man, I wish next time I would totally do it like this. You know, in the forefront of that has always been kind of horizontal scaling. You know, if I look back to kind of some of my previous games, you know, there's always that one service that's super monolithic and we try and just throw more RAM at it or more CPUs and there's just no way, you know. Heard this story a few times before. Yeah, right. Like, you know, and yeah. we've done that too. Like, just rewrite it in C++. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, you know, there's a couple of Redis boxes lying around in our platform still that are very warm at any given time. And that's not a knock on Redis, by the way. That's, uh, like Redis is amazing and has lots of good uses. We've just been like, ah, it just scales infinitely on that one thread. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, you know, as we kind of came together and, and architected it, you know, we knew that we wanted to get a lot more horizontal scaling in. And so, you know, we just kind of keep looking for that. And also, like, you know, if you think back to kind of like the 2012 days and, you know, through kind of 2015, the industry was still very much nascent in terms of cloud hosting. You know, it was still considered a bad idea. <laughs> and, you know, especially on stuff like, you know, the idea of DevOps, like I'm trying to remember when uh, the Phoenix project was actually written, but like the idea of DevOps, for example, was completely unknown. And, you know, things like continuous delivery in terms of, you know, a live product service were still only things that like Google and Facebook could do. And as an indie studio, there's, you know, there's no way. And, you know, we've been really lucky in that, you know, we're now at a time in the industry where a lot of those kind of processes are well thought through and, you know, they make sense in kind of core product loops and players are also willing to get into the mindset of, of, oh, if I give feedback today, tomorrow, I might see that change or even faster. Like, so we did a big deploy yesterday 
And, you know, one of the players was like, hey, this one quest line doesn't unlock this thing. And 30 minutes later, we deployed the fix. And, you know, he's like, oh, wow, like, that's bloody amazing. And it's like, no, that's, you know, that's the cool part of what 2019 can provide. Nice. That's a particular interest of mine personally. You chose Kubernetes and, and GKE specifically even for running dedicated game servers, which is not publicly something that people talk about. Uh, why did you Why did you make that decision? If I'm being honest with you, it's because I'm cheap. <laughs> that's, a, that's not a bad reason. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, one of the big problems that come with game server hosting is the buffer warmth. You know, there's all the game servers that you've got in use and then stuff that's currently turned off and then stuff that's not in use but has to be turned on to handle any kind of matchmaking spikes that happen, right? And my historical life has taught me that if I'm doing this in stack and rack land, you know, I have to be able to have enough capacity for my spikes and I have to leave them turned on all the time and I'm paying the bills on all of these boxes. And if I'm living in kind of VM land, you know, VMs can take, you know, initially like a Windows VM could take up to two or three minutes to provision. And so we always had to have, call it five minutes of buffer at any given time. And if you think about Dauntless, like Dauntless's experience can be as low as three-minute game sessions, right? Mm -hmm. So waiting around for five minutes to have capacity is really bad. So we have to keep quite a bit more buffer than that. And, you know, things like garbage collection-like services that we would install in these boxes can take a while. Like just cleaning up logs and, like, getting replays off the boxes and all this other stuff and making sure everything's in the same state. Those processes could take, you know, upwards of five minutes as well. And so, you know, we'd have to keep, you know, call it, 10 or 15% extra capacity online at any given time. Whereas in GKE, I basically can keep like 1% extra capacity online. I just need to make sure that there are no completely full boxes at all. And given how rapid the pods come on and offline, like there's this nice kind of automatic load balancing that ends up happening. And so I've actually, I just, you know, I keep a tiny little bit of buffer and it's also super nice. It spills over. So like if we get like a crazy spike, like, I don't know, you know, if an outage happens, for example, in one region, mm. no big deal. Like players can spill over. We can very, 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 very quickly spin up capacity elsewhere. And there can be a really nice tight integration with our matchmaker so that players don't even notice. Awesome. So I'm curious because when Dauntless launched, I'm assuming that, you know, now we're in 2019 and, you know, everything's running on the cloud. What is like the trickiest part of scaling a game? I've seen <laughs> launches go off and then immediately servers went down because they weren't anticipating those numbers. Oh, that happened with us. Yes, talk us through it. <laughs> we had all sorts of fun, exciting times. I mean, so we knew a lot of more players were going to show up. You know, you go into consoles, there's kind of like a validation moment that happens. We've got all this PR rolling up, we've got all these influencers. So we know that there's a bunch more players showing up. And the interesting problem that games have that I love <laughs> but I hate is that there's not really a nice, easy way of load testing without real humans. And so finding a quarter million humans or whatever to come and you know, log into a game before it's launched is you know, literally impossible. And so, you know, we need to basically kind of think about that in a new way. And so, you know, we did all of the usual stuff with load testing. Like, you know, every service has like a locust thing that just like blaps the living heck out of every endpoint. And we saw what we thought our load could be, you know, but that's still not representative. And so we were able to actually basically analyze what real players did in the closed beta and use that data to inform bots and then cool parts about uh, kubernetes is we were then able to like spin up literally hundreds of thousands of bots to play dot like kind of like headless like they were still real accounts just they didn't have graphics and they knew what to do because they represented real life players and so we were able to just like spin up thousands and thousands and thousands of them and so that actually got us a ton of really good information and then it started shutting off our video game 
and we couldn't figure out why. And so like the Thursday before launch, every time that we did a bot test that had more than 40,000 people playing in it, it would shut off prod. Ouch. You know, we'd be running it in a different environment and then all of a sudden prod would shut off and we couldn't figure out why. <laughs> Turns out, by the way, that when you write a botnet, anti-botnet protections that you put in place work. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, a, and a whole bunch of, of game players looks like a botnet. Yeah, exactly. So that took a long time for us to figure out what was wrong. You know, these groups that you work with to write these protections, part of how they do it is they like cut off all communication. Yeah, so we basically DDoSed ourselves into submission right through the day before launch. Finally kind of got that fixed. You know, and then the the fact is, like, the play patterns changed, and a lot more people showed up than we ever expected. You know, probably three or four times more folks showed up than than any of our expectations. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, like, great, great first world problem to have, right? But we're really, 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 really concerned with delivering a great experience. And so, you know, a lot of what we were trying to do at that point then was... You know, trying to get ourselves back up and running as fast as possible, setting up things like Bigtable and moving a lot of our databases over to Bigtable. And, you know, as well as trying to communicate effectively and then, you know, inching up. Cool. Well, what if we let 10,000 more players in? All right, cool. We inch that up. Okay. What's the next thing that like starts to become unstable? The launch week between Tuesday to Tuesday, we did 1,712 deploys. Wow. I thought you also like kind of watching this from the sidelines as a fan of GCP and games. And I thought that you did something that I thought was actually really cool in terms of like you, you capture players at certain points and then only like allowed certain numbers in and had a queuing system. That was yeah. something I don't think I've seen many other people do. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk us through that? You know, some of the other games that I've worked on in the past, what, what ends up happening when, you know, the services get full is they just kind of keep layering them in there and having a you know, semi-degraded service until the whole thing kind of cascades over. And so our thought process was, what if there was a very thin version of the game that spoke just enough of the language of the servers to basically leave them in a queue and you know have enough call homes that uh, scaled wildly and so like and then what if we made it so that that could take a hundred times our wildest dreams of players The queue itself, for example, is, you know, coming back to Redis, it was basically a little Python app that had like 500 lines of code that just touched a Redis box and had kind of, you know, whatever you got put in queue, depending on where you are in the queue. Like it would basically say to the, the client, you know, hey, cool, come check back in in X number of seconds. Here's where you are in line. Because at one point, I think we had 300,000 players in queue and, you know, we were accepting like 50 players a second or something like that into the game. And so like that queue was quite long. And just the act of checking the queue would have taken down the service all by itself. And so we actually had to kind of write in this graceful kind of fall off or whatever. So it only checked back in once every three or four minutes when you were, you know, more than an hour in queue and that kind of thing. The nice thing about that too is we could also overload the messages that the queue would tell players. Like if something was really going wrong, we could, you know, we could change the text in that box and say, hey, you know, we're having this other problem. So queue times are going to be even longer and that kind of thing. And that's been really, really helpful. Oh, nice. And then anybody that actually made it through the queue got a reward. These little titles that are in your game. So we also recorded all the players who sat in the queue and made it through. And so the message that you would get, like the error code was called Queen B. <laughs> queue blocked. And so the title that you would get in the game is Slayer of the Queen. <laughs> so. That's awesome. So I could imagine that given all of the things you had to go through at launch, that there had to be some people that you had to reach out on our end to actually help you with the launch and any type of other integration that you had to do. So I'm curious about how our professional teams helped you out. And I'm not sure exactly which teams you actually met with, but oh, you know, hopefully you can speak to that just a bit. Yeah, for sure. So we've had a great relationship with the GCP folks since open beta launch. Actually, like our account manager 
was there when I pushed the big button on open beta 18 months ago or whatever. Uh, and he actually brought the champagne. <laughs> and so, you know, we basically kind of got the opportunity to work with like the CRE team and, you know, the GCP technical account managers and the service account managers and stuff like that through the build up to launch. And that gave us a lot of insight of what could fall over and what couldn't. The weekend before launch, when we were running into the, we don't know why our game isn't turning on because we're DDoSing ourselves. For example, we had five folks from CRE and from the GCP technical team on site, and they stayed up all night with us helping. You know, we set up desks in the war room. We have basically a big kind of common space in the studio that we normally use for mocap. We basically set up like 15 desks. And then as launch happened, everybody was on site with us helping call the shots. We had kind of a dedicated Google Hangout PC with a big monitor that was kind of pointing into the room that folks from Google could phone in and help. And at one point, we had something like 50 Googlers supporting us during the launch. It was really awesome. You know, I have the opportunity of working on a relatively cool thing, like working on games is kind of interesting. And so, hmm. you know, as folks kind of heard that we were doing this thing and like at one point we had folks from like the GCP Linux kernel team heard that we were having a kernel panic issue because of, you know, some reason. And next thing I know, I got some dude that understands how all that crazy business works and he's writing kernel patches for us, you know, just because it's interesting and he couldn't log in and he's like, well, I got nothing better to do. Let me go and fix your kernel panics. And it's like, great. Let's go. It was really wild. Folks were coming in from all over the place. You know, we got custom versions of the Kubernetes masters um, written for us because we were putting load on the masters like no one at Google had ever seen. <laughs> and, you know, we were basically turning on and off so many pods per second. Like at one point, like our master was getting something like 2,500 requests per second. And it's like two orders of magnitude bigger than Google had ever seen before, even on their own services. And they're like, well, okay, I guess we have to make a, a snowflake version, as it was called, for you guys. And so it was super supportive. Everybody from capacity planning, we were, you know, 3x off what our craziest numbers were. And so, you know, we had the capacity planning folks phoning in going like just finding servers for us. And every time that we would find servers eight hours later, the problems mm. shifted to a new area of the world. And so they're coming back online to find us more servers for throughout the world. And it was a really awesome experience overall. No, that sounds great. I'd love to know as well, like even more about that CRE experience. Were they highlighting things that you're like, this stuff is amazing. And then were they like this part? They're like, mm, I don't know. Or like, what did that what did that whole like thing look like as you engage with CRE? Yeah, so over the kind of the six months towards launch, they would come on site and take a look at our tech stack with us, take a look at the usage patterns and go, you know, hey, have you thought about maybe not using like Cloud SQL for all of your auth and inventory? Yeah, 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 you know, it's going to be fine. Like we load tested to like, you know, 8 million, bazillion. And they're like, yeah, cool. No, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, have you thought about Bigtable? No, nah, we don't need Bigtable. Like, you know, the old ways, that's the right stuff. No, 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 it's not the right stuff. Okay, sure, cool. Then, you know, sure enough, yeah, it's the, it's the wrong choice. <clears throat> Big table was the right <laughs> way. But, you know, a lot of it was just them kind of coming on site, being able to leverage all of this kind of institutional knowledge that's built up at Google and with other partners and really kind of just poke, you know, really gentle holes in what we were building and our thought processes and like giving us a lot more context. And we basically just kind of came up with this very, you know, prioritized list of stuff that we needed to fix. And the issues that we had on May 21st were just the next stuff that we couldn't get to in time, which was really like super awesome because the stuff that was way above there was way harder to fix. So, you know, stuff that we could turn around in under a day ended up being the stuff. And so they basically continued to pay attention through the launch 
and started projecting out going like hey you know you know as an example we were using so again in sql sql is like the bane of our existence i think you know we were doing binary logs for all of our transactions and at one point you know we got a call i think it was on friday after launch going cool so you're going to run out of hard disk space on the largest instance that google can make just due to binary logs, your whole service is going to fall over in three days. Small problem. <laughs> it's like, cool, thank God you called. <laughs> We've got three days. All right, how do we fix this? And it's just been that kind of thing where, you know, while we were kind of eyes deep in kind of the immediate fire, you know, the CRE team ended up just kind of having that one week plus out perspective and spent time coming up with solutions to like, okay, cool. Instead of this, do this other thing. And when it got really crazy, they opened up various editors and were supporting us directly. So it was pretty cool. That sounds awesome. Glad you could cooperate with a lot of people. And it's kind of funny how games bring people together, isn't it? (laughs) Right? Like, you know, we always talk about that in the product side, but never in the development (laughs) side. Like at least none of the companies that I've ever worked with before had, call it the present, of mind or the openness to invite other companies to support and it was really sweet getting to work with google on the fact that because they're just like you know we'll happily come into your house and help you just open the door and we're like yeah well, please <laughs> just wipe your um, feet whereas I, you know I, yeah right like come on in i beg you so anyway it was a good experience that's awesome so i'm curious if you could do this all again, I mean, granted, you let us into your house. Yeah. What is the one thing that you would do differently? What is the one thing that you would possibly change if you have something? You know, that's such a weird loaded question because <laughs> the way I look at that is like, what didn't we see? The assumption there is that, you know, that I'm smarter today than I was yesterday or that I had inherently bad judgment then. And I don't think I would have changed anything given the knowledge that we had. I think we did a really good job. You know, I think if I could have seen or, you know, learned something ahead of time, you know, I think I would have liked to have done a better job with log management. I know that's really explicit, but like there were a couple of things that took a little longer for us to identify because of how we did log management. As an example, like, you know, it took a long time for us to get load testing back online because we didn't know we were DDoSing ourselves. That was in the logs from the first outage. We just didn't see it. We didn't know what to look for. We didn't know what to read. You know, these 415 errors that we're getting spun out. It wasn't until, you know, I think it was Sunday night or Monday, really, really early in the morning that one of our engineers was like, what's error 415? I don't know, you know, Google search away. And, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it took like multiple days before we got to it because we were just like, we just didn't do a good job there. The other thing that I think I would do personally differently is, you know, my, I don't think my career really taught me a lot about crisis management. Interesting. And so, you know, in the like minutes of sleep that I was getting or like the minutes of downtime that I was getting post-launch, I was doing a lot of reading about like how firefighters actually manage crisis. And, Mm. you know, even just that small amount of learning that I got in that week in terms of like, I noticed a thing, okay, cool, like who does this really well? Okay, firefighters do, okay, quick, go find literally a textbook on how to be a fire captain and how to think about you know, how to put a burning house out and how to tell folks to go and do the right work. Just that little bit of extra knowledge was really critical. And if I could have learned something ahead of time that I'm more intelligent about now, I would have liked to have been better at uh, crisis management. Just as a general, like, leadership trait, a lot of, you know, leadership folks and, like, technical leadership, like, manuals and, and blog posts and all this other stuff talk a lot about, like, you know, vision and empowerment and, you know, all this other stuff that, you know, I, I ascribe to really aggressively. 
But on the other hand, like when, you know, for lack of a better term, when it's hitting the fan and the building's literally on fire, <laughs> that's a very different set of skills than trying to expose vision and getting up in front of teams and this kind of stuff. And it definitely highlighted a personal weakness for me where, you know, just literally like keeping folks on task on the right stuff and not, you know, accidentally getting people into a flaily place and that kind of stuff. I'm continuing to invest more of my kind of my personal growth time on that kind of stuff. Awesome. What's coming next? Can you tell us about what's coming next or anything, yeah. anything cool? Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff coming. We just announced our next weapon with Nintendo. So we're obviously coming to Switch this year. Not many months left in this year, so it's soon. It's a lot of fun. We just showed it at PAX. There's a whole bunch of new expansion content coming up. We're like, you know, the way I kind of describe it, we're just getting started. Like, you know, we'll probably kind of come out of kind of early access or whatever we're calling the game right now soonish and just kind of keep pumping in more value into it. Like team is ripping and raring to go or however that saying is. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'd like to ask before you go, is there anything that we missed that you might want to mention? You're going to be anywhere in particular? You want people to come find you or anything like that? You know, obviously, anybody who's keen on Dauntless, like, feel free to give it a try at playdauntless.com. I personally, I'm going to be giving some talks over at the Montreal International Game Summit in November on kind of leadership and growing teams and companies and lessons learned and that kind of stuff. You know, otherwise, like, you know, we've got a bunch of GC talks as well that we've done that are recorded on kind of how we scale Dauntless and how we built it. Feel free to check those out. They're really cool. Awesome. So I have one personal question before we let you go, because you're probably the second CEO of a game that I've talked to. How many hours have you have logged in Dauntless? Oh, my God. How many hours have I logged in Dauntless? Thank God we don't have a slash played command. <laughs> like, you know, probably more than I'd like to admit. It's, <laughs> we used to actually have this counter at the studio for number of Drask kills. So Drask is like this kind of big green scaly uh, lightning lizard thing. And it was the first kind of production quality behemoth we had. I was the first at the studio to a thousand kills and those fights used to take 20 minutes long. So, and then I stopped letting us use the counter because it was either non-productive or life destroying one of the two. Um, <laughs> probably not the, the most played version since May at the studio for sure. That probably goes to like either Quentin, one of our web devs or maybe Tanner, one of our artists. They, you know, Quentin's like max level gear on everything and you know, he rivals some of our best streamers now. I can punch with the best, but um, like not as much as I used to, sadly. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. That's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. See you. All right. Take care, guys. So we want to give a big thank you to Jesse Houston for joining us on this week's podcast. Very, very interesting conversation on how Dauntless and Phoenix Labs got started on GCE, all their headaches they've gotten, all the things they had to go through. And it's kind of awesome to see one of our success stories, especially in games. Absolutely. So let's get into our question of the week. So our question of the week is, what is the difference between premium and standard network? Oh, this is a good question. So this is fun. So way back in the day, there was but one network. And there was only one network to choose. <laughs> and that was what we currently refer to now as premium tier networking. So the short answer here is the way Google's network works is we try and get you onto 
our network as fast as possible. So we have a whole bunch of our own fiber and it runs under the water and all that kind of cool stuff. So we basically try and get you from your internet service provider directly to our points of presence. We have like over 100 around the world and then get you inside the Google network where we can control everything. It runs over our network and it works really nicely. Uh, this is this is the premium tier. This is basically high performance routing. We're able to do some other things like have our cloud load balancing to be global. I have global SLAs, things like that. This is basically what you want when you want performance, super fast. But what we also have is what we call standard tier, which is very similar to basically what a lot of other cloud providers provide, wherein you spend the vast majority of your time over the public internet. So you're not running over our network. So it's going to be a little slower. You're going to have a little bit less of a consistent experience, but it's cheaper. This is where we're not going to try and get you on our network as fast as possible. We're going to leave you on the public network. And so you're going to be on a lower performance tier, but it is cheaper. So maybe if cost is what you're trying to optimize for, the standard tier could be really good. But if speed is what you're looking for, then the premium tier could be really good. And you can choose either one as you see fit for each workload as you require it. So really depends on what your needs are. Awesome. So, Mark. Yes. Where are you going to be going? Where am I going? What am I doing? Uh, that's a good question. So first, I'm going on vacation in a few weeks. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> well deserved. Well, I hope so. Yes, it's well overdue. So I'm doing that. And then after I get back from vacation, I will be at KubeCon, as I know you will be as well. Yes, I will. I believe we're doing some workshops, probably some Agones and some open match workshops for anyone who works in the games industry, probably be floating around at a bunch of talks and stuff like that as well. Literally, I just got back from finishing a bunch of other things. So I haven't actually made it to all my plans for KubeCon yet. There's more stuff coming, I'm sure. But come and say hi, either way. And I also will be at KubeCon, and I will be doing all of the above that Mark just mentioned. <laughs> yep. And I will be attending several weddings in the upcoming months. Oh, all of my friends decided to get married together. So that means more flying. That works. That works. But yeah, we'll make sure we have some Google Platform podcast stickers, especially. I need to bug one of our friends, April, and make sure that we have some Agones and OpenMatch stickers to hand out as well. I definitely need the new Open Match one. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for joining me on the episode this week. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. And we would like to thank you all for listening on this episode. Have a good time and see you next week. See you later.